Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Meryl Marco is my guest today. The one and only Meryl Marco. Meryl is nothing short of a comedy legend, I think it's fair to say at this point. She was a TV writer in Los Angeles in her early career, began doing stand-up comedy at the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard back in the late 70s, met a young comedian there, David Letterman. They became romantic partners and comedic producing partners. She went on to be the head writer on the shows that he produced during that time, the David Letterman show in the mornings, and then later Late Night with David Letterman, which was the NBC nighttime show that came on after Johnny Carson and uh, was the show that predated David Letterman's move to CBS. She was the head writer on those shows, co-created them with David Letterman. And, you know, it's interesting. I have read uh, a couple articles about her and some interviews and stuff. And I, I wish I had written this down to know who to attribute it to. But people have compared Meryl Marco's collaboration with David Letterman to that of Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David insofar as when you watch Seinfeld, you think that that show is primarily Jerry Seinfeld's perspective and point of view. But once you discover Curb Your Enthusiasm, you really realize what part of the Seinfeld voice belongs to Larry David. And it's significant, right? There's so much sort of DNA that's shared between Curb and Seinfeld that you realize that, of course, Jerry was bringing stuff to that show. But a lot of sort of what made it so fun and quirky is Larry David. And people have compared that to, to Meryl and Dave. Of course, David Letterman is hilarious and has a very quirky sensibility about him. But a lot of that quirkiness also came from Meryl. And a lot of the sort of segments and bits and things that that show sort of became renowned for were things that she dreamed up and wrote and created. Things like stupid pet tricks, stupid human tricks, you know, the remote segments where, where Dave would go out on the streets in New York and, you know, go into a, a deli or, you know, a, a coffee shop or whatever and just kind of talk to, to everyday people and finding the comedy in that. All of that is Meryl Marco. So just for the comedy piece alone, I'm excited to talk to her. But she's got this amazing new book out, too. And we talk a lot about that today. This book is called We Saw Scenery, The Early Diaries of Meryl Marco. And this is like, I don't know, her eighth or ninth book or something. She's written a lot of books, but this is the first one that is both written and illustrated by her. And it's presented in kind of a graphic novel format, almost like a comic book. And she's taking as source material her old diaries that she found from when she was 10 years old up until maybe age, I don't know, 14 or 15, but sort of looking back on the mundaneness of a suburban girl's existence in the 1960s and sort of, you know, looking for the person that she would become, that kind of quirky comedian. Where did that person come from? Who was this little girl that grew up to be Meryl Marco? And what was her point of view on the world? What was her comedic sensibility at the time? But it's not just diary entries. Adult Meryl is commenting back to child Meryl a lot in this book and providing context for us as the audience and, you know, through the lens of history. And it just, it explores a lot of fascinating things about the power of memory and sort of how we shape ourselves. And it's just, it's a fun, funny book. We Saw Scenery, The Early Diaries of Meryl Marco. I highly recommend that you check it out. And at the time we talked, this was on Monday, it was before Amy Coney Barrett had been officially confirmed, although it looked like that was kind of a done deal. So we talk a little bit about that and, you know, just anxiety coming into the election. And, you know, real quickly, I got to say, for some reason, I was pretty optimistic sounding in just sort of what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. And maybe it's just because it hadn't happened yet. It was a foregone conclusion that Barrett was going to get confirmed. But for some reason, I just had it in my head that you know, maybe things will be all right. And then, you know, within four or five hours of us talking, she's there on the South Lawn of the White House with Donald Trump 
in, you know, Clarence Thomas getting sworn in and, uh, yeah, something changed. It, uh, it feels real now and it feels dangerous and scary. And I don't know what we're looking at heading into next week, but I hope if you haven't yet that you vote, I hope that you don't count on the postal service to return your ballot. If you're going to vote absentee, Look for a safe Dropbox, an approved Dropbox. Make sure it's certified and isn't just, you know, some random box at the side of the road that says put your ballot here in it. Or if you're able to, go do early voting in person. Or, you know, if nothing else, keep next Tuesday, November 3rd, on your calendar. Make sure you turn out. It feels like there is momentum here. And if we can get in front of it, there will be good results. But you know, who knows? It felt that way in 2016, too. So enough about that. But Meryl and I talk politics a little bit. And, uh, you know, the optimism in my voice may have also been a bit of denialism. Who knows? But that's 2020 for you. All right. Here it is. My conversation with Meryl Marco. Well, I want to start by just sort of asking how this quarantine period has been for you. How have the last, you know, six, seven months been treating you? It varies. I've, I have been long accused by all of my friends of being a hermit. Uh-huh. So as, like a lot of people I know, actually in comedy and in in all the creative fields that I'm aware of, writers, a lot of people spend a lot of time by yourself at, at home working on stuff and sure. then a small amount of time with other people. And I was pretty used to spending a great deal of time by myself. This went past the statute of limitations for for what I really like, but right. um but most of it I was kind of used to until what what ended up really being a problem really is input for new material because some of that has to do with interaction with the outside world, right. not just only internet and um that ended up being kind of a limitation, but for a while, it was just kind of like normal, you know. I mean, it was just uh, okay. Well, yeah. and, and a sort of relief that I didn't have to see anyone. Yeah, <laughs> no, no dinner party invites that turned down or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, I yeah, exactly that. And um, and then it, I went past that to where I'm used to seeing people a few times a month, or even when I'm really being a hermit. Right. So, I went right past that into um just stimulus underload. And then actually what I'm suffering from as much as quarantine is just misery from the current administration. Right. Well, who knows? I mean, God willing, we're, you know, a week out or so, and hopefully we'll we'll at least know that change is coming. That's sort of, you know, I'm trying to hold on to that hope, but it's, uh, I know what you mean. It's tough. Well, I still have PTSD from 2016, don't you? Oh, yeah. Well, as we're getting closer to the election day, yeah, just that feeling of like, okay, everything's trending in the right direction. I think we're going to be all right. Uh, You know, like I'm seeing the stuff coming out of Texas now that, you know, so many millions of young people or whatever have turned out for early voting. And, you know, it's it's trending in a good direction. But like, I feel like that was the headline when Better Work was was running as well. And it's just kind of like, do you get and your hopes up on that? It certainly was a headline or? with Hillary. Right. Oh, for it sure. Definitely in, in 16, yeah, definitely. Her. Yeah, yeah. And then there was even the thing of her winning the popular vote. Right, of course. Well, and I, I think the question, too, is going to be like, let's say Biden wins, and we know this, you know, hopefully on election night, it's decisive enough, or, you know, within a couple of days, like, what are the, the two months or so between election day and the inauguration going to look like? That's kind of the, the new anxiety for me. Yeah, and then there's also just the, now the the new heavy heart about Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, for me, you know that's a that's a big misery for me. Do you think I, I'm I, I've sort of wondered this, like you know, people that are that are very pro life and stuff, and that have been waiting for you know forty years for a seat like this. I kind of wonder if they're really gonna take action. Like I feel like people, you know, politicians have been. Uh, kind of stoking their pro-lifeness for a long time and just like, you should vote for me. I'm going to be the guy to, to help overturn Roe v. Wade. And then they never really do anything. I mean, there have been little laws, you know, here and there and stuff, but the foundation of it's still there. Like, I wonder if they're really going to be bold enough, like what they did with Obamacare, where, you know, when they were in the minority, it was, we're going to get rid of it on day one. And now it's been 10 years and it's the law. And, you know, who knows? I mean. But it's because of the Supreme Court that it's still there. Yeah. 
there was always with Bader Ginsburg and a and the possibility of a swing vote, which would be John Roberts. Yep. Now that's gone. Right. So there's no possibility that they aren't going to vote it down now because yeah. there's just unless somebody turned into a whole other person than you expect them to be, there's only going to be an equal vote on both sides. And then the, the tie gets broken by Mike Pence or whoever, right. however that works. Yeah. So uh, it's a uh, it feels like just I don't know, like building up to some crazy climax that just like. They're really just throwing everything. And they, I mean, like, you know, the writer's room up in, you know, the, the heavens or whatever that like, it just feels right. like one crazy thing after another that you're just like, can we just, as you say, it's, we're still recovering from 2016 and now it's like. It has been one crazy thing after another. That's the way that um, Trump keeps your eye off of what he's actually doing. If yeah. he just, he's used to doing that. I'm sure he did that his whole life Yeah. in every part of his business, in every area that he's in just throws a lot of crap in the air and distracts people and gets attention for all of it. And that's really all he wants is just a ton of attention. Yeah. I don't know that he cares about a single other thing. In oh, the it's world clear he doesn't. Just getting, yeah. He, he just wants to go hold his rallies and yeah, have people praise him and whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> meanwhile, when yeah. we're all stuck at home <laughs> living like hermits, the rest of us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I miss eating at restaurants. You know, I mean, that used to be fun for me to get together with friends at restaurants. But, but uh, you know, what are you going to do? I, I don't. And I miss going to the gym. Yeah. I really miss that. Have you figured out a replacement workout routine? Like, do you feel healthy right now? I know I don't, but <laughs> I don't know how you're feeling. Like, have you figured I out a way to keep until up? Until yesterday. Uh-huh. Until the wind, wind event started, I was swimming laps every day since oh, nice. March. I have a pool. And I, I, uh, and I've been swimming laps and, you know, today with the wind, it's gotten cold and weird and I don't know if I'm going to have the courage to go in, but we'll see. Maybe yeah. I'll force myself. Yeah. But anyway, that made me, I started out doing all, trying to do the 10,000 steps walking around the neighborhood and that just made me irritated after a while. I listened to a thousand podcasts and I walked a million steps <laughs> And I just got so sick of right. walking around my neighborhood. <laughs> that, <laughs> the same sights again, right? Yeah, that really, so the swimming laps was way better and also felt way healthier. Yeah. That was really good until yesterday. Right, right. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you about your new book, uh, We Saw Scenery, because, like, I loved it. I just, you know, I, I couldn't put it down and just kind of kept turning the pages. Um, you, you both wrote and illustrated the book. Um, I wonder just sort of, first of all, sort of the inspiration behind this project and then just sort of the timing of it. Like there, there's just so much artwork in it. I wonder like how long you had to work on it. I worked on it for a long time. It started, it's actually, I worked on it in two distinct parts too. Um, I, I started at about, I'd say either three or four years ago and I can't remember exactly which it is. I could find it written down somewhere, but yeah was one of those when I was cleaning out my office because I save everything I think is funny. Right. And I have many boxes of funny things and, um, and they continue to make me laugh. So I don't throw them away. Anything that actually makes me laugh. I have a very hard time throwing away. Yeah. And that's almost the only category of thing that I don't throw away. I'm real willing to throw away clothes and furniture right. and everything. <laughs> well, you mentioned in the book, these boxes of funny things, and there's a couple, you know, like some funny business cards and stuff. Like I, I was really curious when you mentioned that, just like what, what are the kinds of things that are in these boxes? Well, it's an amazing assortment of things because I'm actually in the middle of, because we're having this wind event and uh, we had, a, I've been evacuated for fire a couple of years. Uh -huh. I'm starting to move all of it to storage where it appears to be cement block and metal and doesn't look like it would it would burn too readily. I live in a wood house. Yeah. But sitting just in, so I have boxes and boxes of stuff that um I've been going through to kind of pare it down to see what stuff goes to storage. But sitting in this room with me right now are things that um I recently unearthed and they still like I have this thing I bought because it, it's just um you know how they in a novelty store they sell it's called fistful of flies uh -huh. and and it's just um a, a plastic container full of little 
plastic flies, and right, it's right. called Fistful of Flies. And the phrase Fistful of Flies makes me laugh <laughs> that they named it. I could see the meeting going on. I mean, it, it continues to make me laugh. I have it up in my office right now. That's great. I can't tell you why it makes me laugh, except for I can tell you that it does make me laugh, and so I still have it, and yeah. there's no reason to have it. And when when Andy, who lives with me, moved into my house, I had so much of this stuff that he decorated an entire bathroom, the guest bathroom, which we call the bathroom of horror, <laughs> which is just full of just stuff that makes me laugh and and um and people enjoy it. And so it's it's up. Yeah. <laughs> but I have plenty more where that came from and just um once something makes me laugh I can't get rid of it. I yeah. just but there's no kind of there, there's no I like need it. <laughs> right there's no categories to it. It's not like like all novelty store items or all you know things you get in the no. mail. It's just it's anything you come across that you're like, ooh, that's funny. Well, yeah, and I and I know it when I see it. And the, I, I guess the habit came with me from working on the Letterman show because at that point when I was on that show, pretty much anything that made me laugh, I could somehow figure out how to put into a segment. <laughs> right, and you needed the, you needed to fill the time too. So it was like, okay, yeah, let's yeah. let's have that box. So we right. call it new gift items or right. something and I'd use it as a springboard for something similar to it or you know like I have this pack also sitting in this room with me of something called Whippity Wipes which I say <laughs> okay. because I like the name Whippity Wipes yeah. and then I like the logo which is a paper towel with a big smile on it just <laughs> That's awesome. seems so it seems like I made it up to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I saved it. So I have that lots of that. Yeah, it sounds like the thing that like the art department would mock up to have like you know on a show when you can't say like bounty or something. It's like oh, pass me the whippy wipes. Exactly. It's that's exactly what it seems like to me. So that seems funny to me. And there is no category for it. I would try to make a file for it, but the file would be called whippy wipes, right. and then. There would be nothing else in that file, and then there would be so many files that I would have a thousand filing cabinets. Right. So instead, I have these many, many boxes, and I really, I try to pare it down. I, I'm doing it again, trying to pare it down. But right. some of it comes anyway. At the bottom of one of these boxes, I, I saved. I also saved cool things that were important to me, and I think I could use for material. Like, I was keeping diaries ever since I was about. 10. Uh -huh. So I had these little, these little diaries that my mother brought me when I was in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. They're little and they have a lock and a key, which made me laugh because what exactly would I be writing when I was 10 right. that I needed to lock up and couldn't let anyone see, you know, answer nothing. Right. So, uh, so I thought, well, this would be funny. Why don't I um, just sit down and read them like they're a, a, an early work by me, knowing that they are um, the early diaries of somebody who went on to become a writer. Yeah. Why don't I read them like a piece of literature and maybe write a, a review of them? So that was my original thought. And I sat down to read them and, and I realized that they were amusing to me for a second reason, which was when I got a diary for the first time, I didn't know what you were supposed to do with them. <laughs> so I just wrote down every single thing that I did every day oh, to wow. justify them. Yeah. So, which is not how I keep a diary now, right? At all. Well, and I was wondering too, like when you when you kind of pull snippets from the in the book, like each day's entry is maybe a sentence or two. Like it's not it's not a lot. I was just wondering, like how much were you writing as a kid? Did you have to sort of, you know, curate this collection? Oh, I definitely curated it because what I had to do eventually was make a story arc out of my life, which I had never given any thought to. Right. And um, in order to include, because I worried early on, well, I started doing drawings of them because I thought, I'd like to see what this, the kid didn't remind me that much of me. Yeah. I remembered some of it. I didn't remember a lot of it, but she seemed sort of like a stranger. And I thought, I wonder what she looked like in the context of her life doing all the stuff I don't remember. Right. So I was just sort of thinking, well, this would be funny. Why don't I draw it? And then it, I can make a comic strip out of it somebody talking to you from another era and she's only 11. Yeah. That might be funny. And so I started doing that and I started showing it to my friends and my friends started all going, Oh, well, this is a book. Yeah. Okay. You need to make this into a book. And then I was saying to them, how's it a book? It's random. These are just such random things I'm reading here. So then I thought, okay, for this to be readable by anybody, I have to jump in and thread it with some kind of story arc and then I started looking at, well, what's the story arc of this kid? You know, I know who she turned out to be. Right. 
And I started reading all this stuff that was misery soaked, you know, like I'm a loser. Everybody hates me. I'm just, I'm, I'm a reject. I don't have a boyfriend. And I thought, well, this is, it's weird, but every, so many kids go through this. Maybe it would be sort of comforting if I put that in this book and then they would go, well, what happened to her? Oh, she apparently wrote this book. So I guess she made it through this. She didn't just turn out to be a loser who died and never had a boyfriend. She just, she had a life. So I thought maybe that's worth, yeah, Yeah, turned out all right. So I thought that's kind of a good thing to tell people is, you know, you, you really shouldn't, take your adolescent self that seriously. I know you have to because you're there, right. but it isn't so bad to know that a lot of ad- adults that seem to be super functional also went through it. Yeah. Well, I remember like getting that advice as a kid that just like none of this is going to matter when you're older and you're like, of course yeah. it will. Like this is, are you kidding me? Like that person called me a loser today or, you know, whatever, just some little yeah. insignificant thing like that. But I love that you sort of threaded yourself into it, you know, the older you talking to the younger you and sort of the younger you's reaction too of just like, who are you? Why do you keep talking to me? You know, it, it is exactly what, you know, an 11, 12 year old's reaction would be when, you know, an older person yeah. comes up and tries to give advice. And my reaction also would have been, what do you know? Like, you know everything, don't right. you? You just know everything. You you reference a lot to the, the hippocampus and sort of having conversations back and forth with that. Um, the hippocampus is the part of your brain that sort of stores long-term memory. And in your case, uh, you have it represented as a hippo. <laughs> and I was just curious, sort of... It's that... a hippo on a campus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> at, a, at a college campus. But that sort of... Uh, that discussion back and forth and just sort of the idea, I guess, of sort of what gets committed to memory and sort of how we're constantly, I guess, sort of rewriting the things in our brain, right? Like, it, it's never it's never a pure memory once you look back on it. Well, that's what I thought was interesting is that I had, I only remembered some of it. And sometimes things I labeled the worst day of my life weren't there at all, you right. know? And I thought, wow, it's amazing that that didn't imprint. You'd think that would have been remarkable, but then I would remember a really awful sandwich. You know, I mean, (laughs) it's weird that, um, it's just weird what you choose to remember. And then after a while, because I was drawing the ones I, you know, I went through the thing and I curated it in terms of stuff that I thought was moving forward and also, and telling a story and also funny. And I realized that I couldn't tell whether or not, as I kept reading it, whether what I was remembering was a memory or if I developed a memory by reading it, mm. you know, like I started making a picture of it and right. what it seemed like it was to me. And then I had that picture with me and I couldn't tell if that was what I'd done. If I just now filled it in with stuff I'm, I needed in order to imagine it. Right. And that's what you don't know. You know, you really don't know, but I was, I was happy to see the amount that I'd written down, like I wrote a bunch of fights I had with my parents. I wrote down verbatim, which I never would have remembered. I'd remember that I had a fight, but in fact, if you had said to me, what did you do in fifth grade? I would have said, um, I know my teacher was Mrs. Huckabee and, uh, and I think, was that Girl Scouts? No, I think that was six. You know, I wouldn't really know which things were fifth grade until I realized I'd written down all of fifth grade. Right. So that was, that was amazing to me that I had now I just reignited the whole memory process because I kept a record of it. And, and then in terms of doing the drawings of it, you mentioned the drawings. I, you know, I went to a lot of art school, so that I knew I knew how to draw. Yeah. But I thought I was really committed to um, paper and pens and stuff because I've always liked that stuff. But I didn't draw for years here now since I became a professional writer. Yeah. I kind of um, had just put drawing down, but I've always been buying pens and paper and stuff because I always just really liked it. And when I went to do the drawings for this, I started out with really cool drawing paper and some really beautiful pens that I bought and stuff. And I I had learned how to do Photoshop and I was putting them into Photoshop and shooting them out and then drawing on some more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I did that for the amount of the book that I had pulled together when I sold it. Then they asked me to do more. And somebody suggested that I try doing digital work. And I thought, well, no, I'm really just old fashioned. I really love pens and paper and stuff. Right. 
But just to humor them, I went and got an iPad Pro with a digital setup on it and um, an iPad, an Apple Pencil and stuff. And I don't think I'm ever going back to the other stuff. I mean, really? it's so great. Yeah. Well, there's there's a special little thing called an undo button. Uh-huh. Right. Where you don't have to start over again with a new piece of paper. You just go back to the mistake and it's gone. Yeah. If there's anything more liberating than that, my God, I don't know what it is for an artist. My, it's just the best thing in the world. Yeah, but you don't miss the real-time feedback of just like feeling the pen on the paper or anything? You, you get used to it with the Apple I Pencil? I would have thought I would. Nope, never. Not You know, the, you, there's some beautiful stuff about what you can do with the digital stuff. They've designed a million pencil points, a million types of brushes. Wow. And then they've got some magic tricks you can do, like clouds, right. where you don't actually have to do the cloud. You just push the pencil around and it makes a cloud. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> There's two distinct books there. There's the the digital half and the, the latter half is digital. The first half is pencil and paper and stuff. Gotcha. But, but um, the, occasionally, you know, the, occasionally I put like there's a real piece of newspaper in there with right. me on the cover of it when I went to, and there's a real um, photo, which they use as an end paper in the book of a drawing I did when I was in the eighth grade that says, I hate Mrs. Reed. <laughs> yep. It's a, that was real. I did that in time, real time during class. Wow. So, and, and have, and saved it because I thought it was funny. <laughs> so that. <laughs> That's the the mechanism I'm still fighting with. Is I'm glad I saved it. You right. know, I really love it. It looks exactly like that teacher. Yeah, <laughs> it comes in handy all these years later. Uh, there yeah. was there was a section too where you you write about an awareness of an audience at a certain point. That like prior to that you were just kind of writing down your thoughts, and then at a certain point you sort of started addressing the reader and sort of imagining that this would be published someday, which, you know, how funny that it, it ended up being published. But I was just thinking about sort of, you know, all different types of performance, I guess, whether it's writing or, you know, comedy or music or whatever. I feel like it kind of starts for a lot of people with that sort of, you know, speaking to the audience that isn't there, whether that's in your journals or, you know, the bathroom mirror or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And then some of us just carry it on forever. It's kind of amazing. I actually was writing at some point, I say something in there. It was like I was writing a diary in case civilization came apart and they had to reestablish everything from the blueprint in my diary. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, this was going to be the document. Be a very sad civilization. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of fights with parents and stuff. Yeah, very little else. Right. We were talking before sort of about how uh, memory gets reframed and sort of that that feeling of like, you know, was this something that I remember distinctly or do I remember it now because I've recalled it? And I felt like one of the great examples of that was sort of, there's a little section where you talk about being in love with John Lennon and sort of, you know, going to see the Beatles at the Cow Palace and like very distinct yeah. uh, sort of not enjoying the show and, and very specific memories about sort of, you know, everyone around me was screaming and I could only hear Paul say this one thing and I had my, my hands over my ears the whole time. And I just was thinking, like, that feels like, like, if, if you had known in that moment that the Beatles were only going to be on tour for, you know, two to three years of their career and were only going to record for, you know, whatever it was, six or eight years. Like, I'm sure now if someone says, did you ever see the Beatles? You're like, oh, yeah, it was the best thing. It was so cool. But like that the, you know, whatever, 11, 12 year old version of you has a very distinct memory of it not being the best time. Like I, I just really enjoyed that contrast. But I wasn't so far off. It was really, really, I was a super big Beatles fan, and it was really annoying to go there and be even have paid for tickets sort of toward the front of the thing. And then because everybody rushed the stage, I remember my friend and I went and stood almost on the front row. Yeah. But we still couldn't see or hear. Yeah. And it's just, how irritating is that? You can't hear, you're, you're not that far away from them playing and you can't hear anything. Yeah. That's just torture. Yeah. What could be worse at a concert <laughs> than that? And and it's all kids your age being jerks. Well, now I felt they were jerks. Right. But it's such a specific time, I guess, too, right? Like of, of just like that's, you look back at, you know, the the Ed Sullivan performance or something and just imagine like, you know, oh, to be one of those people screaming in the crowd and like, but you're right. It, it would have been misery and, and you experienced it. It was. 
Well, I thought it was funny that I had recorded that because I never see anybody writing that version of it. Yeah. Everybody remembers some golden, precious memory about the whole thing. But I was never a screamer. I never understood why you're screaming. That doesn't make any sense to me at all to, to this very minute yeah. to scream, except for if, if it's a thing all the girls decided to do and you, you and your friends are going to do it. I don't know why you're screaming. I, to this second, I don't know why you're screaming. And for an hour and a half, too, that you're there to see the whole show. <laughs> like, it's just constant screams. Why are you never... screaming? Right. Why aren't you listening? Right. <laughs> it's wild. So I just, I never had much in common with my peer group in general. I, I learned to separate out and be opinionated really early on. I think I got that from my mother, who was kind of like that. Yeah. But I was always sort of a bystander of things, not a not a participant that way. Right. In fact, I went to Altamont on top of, I didn't, that didn't make it into his diaries, but I left before the murders. Yeah. That's crazy to me. <laughs> Just, and, and like a Black Panther rally as well. And I have a button here. Yeah. Like... Yeah. I went, I went to every damn thing. It was unbelievable what I went to. It's wild. <laughs> and I never really liked being at any of them, but I always thought it would be a cool. I'll tell you one story that is just sort of tangential to everything. I went to two Ken Kesey acid tests. Right. And I wasn't way too young to go to them. I don't know what I told my parents I was going to, but, and I'm surprised that they, they let me in. I didn't have a fake ID or anything. Yeah. I guess I'm not sure what, how I got in, but, um, cause I definitely under 21, I think it was only 16 or 15 or something. But on my way out, I left early because there was such thick smoke there yeah. that I it was making my eyes burn. I couldn't close my eyes, and I really and somebody stuck their hand up my dress, and I didn't really like it. So I left early, and on my way out, I took a poster off the out exterior of the um, the building, which they they were hand designed, hand drawn posters, which oh, were cool. really big in them days. Yeah, right. And I had space in my bedroom, so I thought, okay, this is perfect, and I took it home. And I found it about two years ago in a file, actually. And so uh, about two years ago, I was on a show on CNN called The History of Comedy, uh -huh. where I just was talking to them about comedy. And I needed to decorate what was behind me for the shot. So I put that thing up, and I started getting emails from people after it was broadcast, not asked, saying anything about the interview, just saying... <laughs> Was that a blue Ken Kesey acid test poster behind you? And it was. Apparently, they were mostly yellow. Oh, wow. And um, I sold it for 20 grand. Wow. That's wild. How's that for <laughs> the best money I ever made in my whole life? Seriously. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the incentive to hold on to the rest of those boxes, I guess, because who knows what's in them? That's awesome. Who knows when Fistful of Flies is going to come into its own and really be the thing that everybody needs. It'll be something. <laughs> um, I, I want to go back to, you know, sort of talking about comedy and stuff. Like, it, it's it's interesting to me just sort of like looking at the arc of your career and sort of all the different, you know, sort of interests that you've been able to pursue and almost reinventions of yourself. Um, I, I'm really curious sort of about your period as, as a stand-up comedian and sort of like working at the comedy store and stuff. Like... I, what was sort of because you had been you had been in, in art school prior to that and had been teaching art classes, right? Like, I'm curious what led you to, to stand up art comedy for one year. And when I was teaching art for one year at USC, it was when I realized they had a big film department. And I had been um, because of the time period that I went to school, there wasn't really film departments at the UC campuses. Maybe there was one at UCLA. In fact, I'm sure there was one at UCLA, but there yeah. wasn't one at UC Berkeley. And it never had occurred to me that that was a career or TV. There was definitely no TV department right. at UC Berkeley. So it didn't occur to me that it was a thing you could do and it didn't seem like a career it seemed to, i never really gave any thought to how anybody got those jobs but i thought people knew somebody yeah. you know they just somehow your dad knew somebody and then they introduced you to somebody who, I, that that's all I, the amount of thought i given it until i was at usc and realized that i could audit their um film classes because i was faculty Right. So I started taking, I took a screenwriting class and I took a basic filmmaking class and I took a sound editing class and I, I took like five, four or five classes. And then after my job was over, because I was just an adjunct professor for one year, yeah, I went back up to San Francisco and I wrote spec material based on what I knew and moved down to LA with it and got work. So that was how I did that, that, and I stunned myself by how quickly I got work. Yeah. I mean, really seriously stunned myself. I never, I was sort of playing truth or dare with myself 
I went down there thinking, okay, I'm in my 20s. I don't want to turn 30 and say, you know what I should have done? You know what I should have done? Right. So I just did it, and I and I got work like in weeks. Wow. Did you have an agent or anything, or was it just I like nothing. just putting things in an envelope and like Warner Brothers lot, putting it in the mail and hoping someone responded, that kind of thing? Well, I... Um, and I did that at least once. I I wrote a thing or two with a, an old friend of mine in San Francisco who I later got a job on the David Letterman show and he stayed there until he retired. Oh, wow. Name is Jerry Mulligan. And he was, <laughs> I turned out to have been the most important friend he ever had. <laughs> right. And we said, we actually wrote a script together and, and we had gone to the library and read some book, you know, how to sell a script. And we got the name of some agent who was charging you money to read your script. That that doesn't exist. Right. That's bullshit. That's a uh, just a non-agent agent asking for money to read your script. Right. That's not the way it works. Anyway, I did at least that. And then when I moved down there by myself, I had two names. One my was a woman who was a TV writer who was the head writer for Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, be- before it got canceled. Uh-huh. And I got her name from my aunt had gone to some kind of a ethical culture summer seminar with her and had gave me her name and said she would talk to me about things. And then I had the name of somebody else who had moved down to be, try to become a writer. And I looked up both of these people and the, the second person, we became roommates and we rented an apartment together and had mattresses on the floor and stuff. Yeah, and wow. the first person who had worked on Mary Hartman, I went and had lunch with her to just have a little talk about what I might do, you know, and she liked me so well, she hired me to do research for her. And then I wrote about two weeks after that, I was attending meetings with Norman Lear with her. Wow. And this was like at the height of Norman Lear. Mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Wow. It was. It was the height of Norman Lear. Yeah. And I was working on a pilot with her for Norman Lear, which, and the whole thing came apart, but I'd already been to meetings with Norman Lear. You know, it was... It happened so quickly that I was just sort of, I was stunned. And then not too long after that, I got a job on, they were redoing, trying to reboot Laugh-In. Yeah. And, um, and they hired first-time writers, myself included, and first-time new cast members, Robin Williams included. Wow. It was a terrible show, but I had a staff writing job, writing jokes for them. So that happened really quickly. It was within three or four months. I was, I had had two jobs, you know, wow. I mean, it just, I blew my mind. So that's how I did that. But but you were you did some stand up as well, right? You you weren't just writing; like you were actually on stage. So at the I store started and doing right? stand up then. Okay. I started doing stand up when I was working for Laughing because Laughing was such an impersonal, depersonalizing, dehumanizing job where we were turning in thousands of jokes, and then they were never getting into the script, and they'd come back to us with Xeroxed with a number on them, like number four hundred and seventy eight, number two thousand ten, number, wow. and so I. There was a. I had met somebody there at the, on the writing staff there who was a stand-up, and I went started going with her to the comedy store, and then I started thinking, well, okay, I want to try this. I'm writing all these jokes, and so I started doing Monday nights at the comedy store, and then I started doing the comedy store some and some the improv some, and I met Letterman, and the next thing you know, we were doing all his shows. Right. So I did stand-up for that period of time, and then when the Letterman show launched and stuff, I stopped because I couldn't. It was like a 24-hour-a-day job. Right. And then after it ended, some years later, for, ended for me, I started again. And pretty soon after that, I, I was working in local news doing my own segments, and then I was, I was doing um, specials for different cable outlets that were my own comedy with me as a performer and a director on them and stuff. And, and then I started doing alt comedy venues, which I did until a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. So you've, you've been doing stand-up all along. I didn't realize that. For some reason, I thought it was just sort of that, that stint in the 70s. Yeah, I did it for a lot of years, but um, but not the way that you're supposed to be doing it lately. You know, uh-huh. I mean, anymore, it's like four times a year. And that's people I know who are really serious about it think they shouldn't go two days in a row without doing it. <laughs> so it's, it's far from that. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm interested too in sort of the Letterman piece of it, and just sort of you know when that show. I know you you guys worked together on on the morning show first, the David Letterman show, but then eventually uh, late night with David Letterman at NBC. Like when that show launched, 
there wasn't anything else aside from the tonight show in late like thinking of the late night landscape now where there's you know 47 shows or whatever like it was it was you guys and johnny right right it was well there had been weird things that were on and off that um were always really terrible like um alan thick had a show oh really briefly when we were doing the morning show and jerry lewis had a talk show which i recommend that you um if you are a comedy nerd at all uh, I would recommend that you find it on YouTube and glory and how horrible. Really? If you like horrible TV, and I <laughs> definitely do, it's remarkable. It's just remarkable display of egomania and um, misbegotten cues and wow. weird ideas. And <laughs> so there were things like that that would kind of come and go. You yeah. know, they weren't there for very long. But before I, we even did his morning show, we did a, um, another one. I did three shows with him. Uh-huh. You know, be, the late night one finally being the launch that took, we did two other iterations of it right. first. So that's how we got to the third one was the other two. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, too, though, like without, you know, I, I feel like now because there's so many shows, like people are kind of taking, uh, they're, they're riffing on a couple of different models, right? Just like. I'm going to do the political version of this, or I'm going to do the, you know, the female perspective or, you know, whatever it is, but they're all sort of in the same general universe. Like you sort of had to come up with the playbook for what that show was going to look like. And I I just wonder sort of what, what the goals were and, you know, what were you guys thinking as, as you were trying to figure out how you do a late night show that, that shares some DNA perhaps with the tonight show, but that's wholly different and is talking to a very different audience. I think that was the combination of Letterman was a, a worshiper of the Tonight Show. He loved Johnny. Right. I never liked Johnny. Uh-huh. I always thought he was weird with women and cold and uh, and boring. I always thought the interviews never went anywhere. There was all that kind of double entendre flirting with the women. Yeah. And that was the only reason they were there. There was nobody really that I was particularly interested in except for the comedians. And there were only very specific comedians on the Tonight Show. Women couldn't really get on there. Yeah. And except for Joan Rivers and I... I know it's. I'm not supposed to say this, but I I really wasn't a Joan Rivers fan. Mm. Yeah, she was running with a a series of assumptions in her act that didn't agree with ha- me having spent all those years in Berkeley. You gotcha. know, I just didn't like that. Get the ring, get the ring yep. stuff. I didn't care about that stuff. So I just didn't relate to her. So anyway, there wasn't really that show was not for me. But I had been to six years of art school. And what was for me was just, I was way into theater of the absurd and comedy. Right. And so the combination of what Dave knew how to do, which was audience participation. And he had had a talk radio show for a while. So he liked making phone calls. So he had a few things like that. Like he liked going into the audience and asking questions and he liked making phone calls. And after that, I had like a lot of ideas about ways, things to take the camera out. And we had been given a set of restrictions on Carson, which were um, no having the the uh, announcer sit down hmm. and be the sidekick, yeah, and no opening monologue, which he thought was his signature. Right. So we were calling what we did at the very front just opening remarks, and then it, and then Dave would sit down and do a piece. Yeah. And then also he didn't want us to do stump, Carson didn't want us to do stump the band. <laughs> okay. And after that, after he had said those three things to me, I just remember laughing and going, so you mean that leaves every other thing in the whole world? <laughs> we can do that, right? Yeah, we'll do that. And how about if we just do that? All the other things that are in Stubbs of Band, that's what, what he did. Everything that I could think of, if I could figure out how to format it, like we'll take the camera and we'll... I, I was literally reading the phone book because that's what we had. We didn't have internet right. yet. It was probably, I guess, ten years before internet. So I would what we what you had as a route to the outside world was the phone book, the yellow pages, and I re- would read through the whole Manhattan yellow pages, looking for either topics that I thought I would have questions about, or claims, superfluous claims that they made that yeah. we could go challenge them on, like world world's best cheesecake or right. whatever. So I found tons of that. Yeah, and those remote segments sort of became one of the hallmarks of the show, and and was you were sort of the driving force for for bringing those in. 
it, it it to me sort of parallels what was happening in news at the time that you know it, it uh, news cameras and things had gone from being filmed that had to go back and get processed to these you know eng cameras where you could go out and and shoot video and and shoot a lot of it right. like it's just sort of interesting yeah. sort of the I don't know if you've ever thought about sort of the fusion between how technology uh, influences comedy. Oh, yeah. Well, I think those cameras that we had to take out, those were considered really portable at the time. But, boy, they were giving every cameraman a horrible backache, neckache. They were heavy. They were like carrying, you know, a car battery on your shoulder almost. Not quite that bad. But they also and they also were running on giant batteries. Right. So in the middle of whatever it was, there was always battery change and there'd be a giant battery change <laughs> they were big they yeah. were they were the size of a large briefcase right but prior to that like if you wanted to do a remote segment like doing something like that a man on the street type thing was was very difficult to do or you know it would have to be film or something right. like it wasn't yeah just it, te- technology but think sort of, of doing it now right <laughs> you could do Holy it with an moly. iphone i mean yeah i mean uh, how amazing <laughs> to be doing that and i can't even imagine how easy it would be to research this stuff maybe it's so easy to research it now that it would be there'd be too much and it would be hard yeah because i was limited by the the structure of the manhattan phone book and then of course i could get a phone book for queens or brooklyn too but it was limiting right you know so you you could make your way through it and see what your choices were (laughs) i mean imagine if you were working off the internet right jeez it's crazy I want to ask too. Like, I'm, I'm just curious. Sort of, you and Dave were both obviously you were creative partners, but you were romantic partners as well. And like, just how, what was that like to manage? Like, just were you ever able to sort of turn work off and just like go to a movie, or were you no. both just sort of always on? Well, you were always. Well, the whole way that the show was designed is that everything could be the show. Right. So there was never a thing that I ever saw anywhere that it would, didn't seem like, you know what we could do is we could come back here with the blah, blah, blah. Right. It was the show 100% of the time. And then there was also, I mean, it's really, it's not a good idea for a couple. I don't think very many couples can last in that circumstance. Although right. I was just sort of bred to believe by mythology of Hollywood or whatever that was a great idea that um, a husband and wife working together or, a, you know, George Burns and Gracie Allen or whatever. I was just led to believe that that was the perfect situation is that you would have work and love in one spot. Yeah. And so I, until it, it became impossible, I thought it was a shortcoming of mine. Like I was causing failure to it, but it would be things like we'd come home from, 12 hours at work and he'd go, what's for dinner? Right. <laughs> and I'd go, well, I don't know. Um, and so then there was a period of time I remember when, during the night show where on weekends I would cook five things for dinner so wow. that I could have an answer. <laughs> it was just completely crazy is what it was. It was a, it was a crazy-making situation, not a good situation. Yeah. You've got to be extra mature, extra organized, you know, adult, really calm to really to pull that off yeah well and i feel like that's part of the joy of a romantic partnership is that you can sort of whatever you've gone through at work that day it can kind of get shed the moment you walk through that door you know it's still kind of stewing there but like you know it's it's easy to forget or to change gears or something but like if you know if you're just always thinking about work or as you say just sort of constructing these bits and stuff and you know or even just sort of yeah. mulling over what happened throughout the day like yeah I, I i can't imagine and then he's a very high he's a very stress high stress individual anyway and he always felt we were getting canceled because right. we'd gotten canceled on the morning show yeah we for sure for real got canceled so by the time the night show hit when he was under the impression every minute that we were getting canceled so i he was in panic and terror and and angry. And I was believing him because I was living inside his head with him in order right. to accommodate the creative process too. So I always felt we were failing until I left the show. Yeah. So that's that, you know, that we missed, I missed one of the bigger successes in my life. <laughs> I missed it. I was there, right. but I didn't know we were a success. And it, people laugh when I tell them that I've been telling people that for years, but it's the truth. Yeah. I really, I didn't know we succeeded at all until years later. Yeah. Even with like, you know, cause he was on the cover of like, I don't know if it's time magazine or people magazine. Like he was, he was a big deal at that time. That was, that was the show at that era. 
Yeah, but he didn't, um, for whatever reason, he would not acknowledge the upside of stuff. He just would really fixate on the the downside. Yeah, He's just built that way. So if we got one bad review, but he was on the cover of Newsweek, he'd take Newsweek and throw it across the room and just be fixated on that bad review. Gotcha. So he, that's just how he's built. I don't, I, it is my fervent hope that he is no longer like that. I don't know if he is or not, <laughs> but he might be, or maybe he's maybe he's moved on and is a mellower dude now. But that's how he was relating to his own success at that point, and so I was was worried always. Yeah, well, it, it takes a lot to to rewire somebody too. I mean, that's uh, you know, it, it's yeah. a lot of active work. Totally to, does. Yeah, um, yeah. You were the head writer of that show at a time when there were not just, you know, no other female head writers, but very few women in the writer's room. Like now we're at, at a place where, you know, there's there's Samantha Bee's show and Lily Singh, Amber Ruffin. Thank like, God. Yeah. Like, but I, I, they're still, but women are still way underrepresented. You yeah. know, it never occurred to me at the time at which I told you about how I got out of art school and I got these jobs really fast. So right. it didn't really occur to me until things were really tumbling into place that it was still co- how unbalanced it was Yeah, because I had some early weird opportunities befall me out of nowhere. Right. So it didn't occur to me how, what the general imbalance was. I just thought, I, I remember saying to people when I moved down here, you know what? You can just move to LA and get a job as a writer. They just give you them. <laughs> right. It worked for me. So. <laughs> well, I just didn't think there was anything special about me. I felt, you know, they were just desperate for people. I didn't know what it, I was delusional is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> and lucky it was, it was good timing and stuff too. I think that, that helped and talent. And... It was a weird combination of, of my abilities or my point of view and, uh, and whatever, you know, yeah. Yeah. Great. Hard to say. All right. Meryl Marco there. Man, how fun was that? I, I like, I'm a comedy nerd, and there were just so many amazing stories in there. There was so much I wanted to ask her about, too. I, I like, I could have gone on twice as long. Uh, she mentioned Robin Williams there. I'm so curious what it was like to write for him and work with him. And, you know, this was before Mark and Mindy and before he was really Robin. So I wonder sort of what that era was like. And I know Meryl was also friends with Andy Kaufman. And I'm really curious about that. Didn't get a chance to ask her. But uh, the stuff that we did talk about, man, it blew me away. Just hearing about, you know, growing up as a teenager in San Francisco and the comedy store, working with Dave Letterman. And her book, her book is awesome. We Saw Scenery, The Early Diaries of Meryl Marco. I am usually a huge Kindle fan. I get my Kindle fix and, you know, read as much as I can on the Kindle. This is a book that I think you want to physically hold. It's worth getting a physical copy of this book because the art is just so cool and uh, it's just fun. All right. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. I've got a big one coming up on Monday. I can't tell you about it yet, but it's also the 50th episode of Quarantine Creatives. So I hope you come back and join me. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Go vote. <laughs> <laughs>